Matthew chapter 18. Our text will be verses 15 through 20. Um, Last Sunday we started to delve into the topic of discipline, not from the perspective of church discipline right away, but beginning with the principles of godly discipline. We read from Hebrews 12 and we heard that whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. So we concluded discipline is the natural and necessary expression of loving authority, right? If you receive discipline from the Lord, it is actually assurance that you are his child and he loves you. Now, my hope is that we hold on to those principles that we've learned as we move into these passages that put those principles into practice. So the first one we'll look at, and probably the most well-known, is Jesus' teaching here in Matthew 18. Over the years, this text of Scripture has been made to say a lot of things that it doesn't, and... All the while, what it actually does say is frequently ignored. So let's look at the text and the surrounding context and try to grasp what the Lord Jesus is teaching about discipline in his church. Matthew 18, starting at verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear... Take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you as a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two or three agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Now, I just want to put this into context. The entirety of Matthew 18 shows the way that the Lord Jesus is just an excellent teacher in the way that he uses illustrations. Matthew 18 can be called the Sermon on the Child text because the disciples of Jesus are an arrogant bunch. More than once they got into heated arguments between themselves about which of them was superior. In Mark chapter 9, they argued with each other as they were walking down a road together. They quietly sort of whispered an argument with each other about which of them was greater. And when the Lord Jesus later asks them, as we were going down the road, what were you arguing about? Nobody wanted to admit that what they were arguing about was which one of them was the greatest. But as Matthew presents this situation up in verse 1 of chapter 18, The disciples at this point actually come to Jesus asking him which is the greatest, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And in response, the Lord Jesus takes up a little child and sets that young child in the middle of the group and uses that child 
as a sermon illustration. Y'all think you're all better than this, but I'm telling you, unless you become like this, you won't even get into the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's important for us to remember that when we get down to our text in verse 15. He starts with the word moreover, right? It's this connective word, meaning that he's, he's adding to the teaching that he's already done. He is building on this continued argument. And so he's still preaching the sermon on the child text, just adding to the lessons he's already taught. So, for example, in verse 4, The lesson is that disciples must humble themselves like children in order to achieve any semblance of greatness. In verse 6, he is so protective, he says, of his little ones that for someone to lead them into sin is an act deserving the greatest condemnation. It would be better if that person was never born. In verses 12 through 14, Jesus is like a shepherd who will leave the whole flock in order to go out and restore one lost sheep who goes astray. And now in verse 15, where we pick up our text, it, it continues. He so desires the restoration of his precious sheep that when we see one of those sheep going astray, we have a responsibility to seek its restoration. Now, I hope you see this as the context because it is vitally important to know that Jesus is not teaching in Matthew 18 what so often gets, what it so often gets used for. So often, Matthew 18 gets used as, well, here's where Jesus teaches us how to get rid of bad sheep. What he's teaching is here is how to seek the restoration of a little one, a child of God who strays. The goal of discipline, even the extreme discipline of excluding someone from the church, the goal is restoration. Now, restoration is not always possible because restoration, some folks don't want that, right? Some will not accept correction, but biblically, That is the goal. So in order to encourage that goal, Jesus offers here some practical instruction. In Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, the Lord Jesus develops a kind of flow chart which guides his church in practicing discipline. And so we're going to look through this text and we're going to see five points in it as we go along. First, I want you to see the situation. Verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, that's as far as we have to get to see the situation. Right? As the Lord Jesus develops this example, right, expanding on the idea of a little one, one of his children who's gone astray, potentially perishing, he immediately makes it evident that what he means by going astray is he has a concern that they have strayed into sin, right? Wisely, I mean, Jesus is the the master teacher here, so he does not specify one particular kind of sin. Had he done so, had he given some specific example of sin, you know that people would have 
limited this principle to only about that sin. So, for example, had he said, imagine that you have a brother who has stolen some money. Immediately, everyone would just look at this text and say, this is not not applying to any other situation. This is only about someone who has committed theft. Right? But Jesus wisely remains vague. He doesn't specify the sin because this is to deal with all kinds of sin. In his example, this brother has done something. It is sin. But even so, people continue to grouse and nitpick and say, well, okay, well, this teaching, it's only about personal offenses because Jesus says, if your brother sins against you. And so we've got no business dealing with sin unless it's sin against us personally. A couple of thoughts about that. First, many old manuscripts simply read, if your brother sins, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Second, Peter's statement down in verse 21 When he asks Jesus, how often shall my brother sin against me? That would suggest that this reading, if your brother sins against you, is correct. But even so, the end result of this flowchart that Jesus gives is that the church as a whole is called upon to make a judgment and call them to repentance. Thirdly, Remember, the context is concern about restoring his straying children. So it would seem unwise to suggest that Jesus' greatest concern should not be your great concern. Jesus' concern here is not if you are offended, right? Jesus' concern is your brother has sinned and it needs to be addressed, Now I say that because after our text, starting at verse 21, the Lord does deal with the offended party, right? Peter asks, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And so Jesus deals then with the person who is offended. But in our text, verses 15 through 20, Jesus' focus is on the offender, right? The one who has sinned, the one who needs to be restored because they've gone astray and so if your brother sins is the situation second the solution verse 15 go and tell him his fault between you and him alone if he hears you you have gained your brother the first step in this discipline flow chart is private correction. Now let's remember what the word discipline means. Teaching is discipline, right? It's related to that word discipleship. Teaching is discipline. Correction is discipline. If you have a brother or sister who has fallen into some sin, maybe they need to be shown in the word that it is in fact sin. You realize that people when they're first saved, that doesn't mean they naturally know everything that's right and wrong. They have to be taught. And so maybe they need to know what they're doing is sin. So go and teach them privately. Maybe they need that, maybe they know it is sin, but they need the loving guidance of a brother or sister, another child of God, to 
to help them leave that sin behind. So go and correct them privately. The goal of discipline is not let's try to publicly shame somebody. Discipline biblically seeks to avoid that very thing. Biblical discipline seeks to keep private matters private. And to accomplish that goal, the Lord Jesus calls on his people to be willing to take what is admittedly the hard step of having a difficult conversation of going to someone privately and lovingly correcting your fellow believer. Listen, this is your calling. And it is not just if you have been personally offended by their sin. Listen to the Apostle Paul's guidance as he teaches the churches at Galatia. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. He writes, Brethren, if any man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So Jesus says, if your brother sins, and Paul says, if, if, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, the restoration is the goal. I mean, that's the context, right? Jesus doesn't want any of his little ones to perish. Our, our great shepherd is the kind who is willing. He just described before this passage, he's willing to leave the 99 in the flock in order to go out on his own by himself to seek the restoration of the straying sheep. When Paul speaks of restoring that person in Galatians, he's actually using the word restore that is a medical term that's like to, to, to set a broken bone. I don't know if any of y'all have ever had a broken bone set, but I will assure you it is momentarily painful but ultimately healing. This goal of going to a brother or sister who is in sin and, and convicting them of their sin and seeking their restoration is momentarily painful, but it is ultimately healing. He also says to do it in a gentle spirit, remembering that you are not above sin. My friends, the the mutual discipline and correction that happens within the assembly of believers is with the understanding that we are in this together. We all struggle. We all seek to help one another. And so if you approach someone with an arrogant, better-than-thou attitude, you're breaking bones, not setting them. The solution Jesus presents when someone is straying is that you go to them privately in the kind of meek and gentle spirit that deals with this in compassion and wisdom so that Jesus says he hears you and you gain your brother. The word gain there literally means to win. I like how the NIV describes this. It says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Now, if for some reason this is because of a personal offense, something they've done specifically to you, then you have all the more reason to keep such a matter private. Unfortunately, the commands of Jesus often, almost always, run 
counter to our sinful natures, right? If, if I'm personally offended by you, it should not be my goal that a dozen people hear about it before you hear about it. Jesus says that addressing it in person is the first step, not the last one. But again, I want to stress, this is not primarily about people who are personally offended. It's about people who you love who are behaving in ways offensive to God. So when you see that, go and restore that person. Rescue them if you can. And just in case, look, I don't know why you would need to hear it from somebody other than Jesus, but just in case you need to hear it from somebody who's not Jesus and who is not the Apostle Paul, here's James, James 5, 19 and 20. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Now, because no flow chart ends with the first possible solution, Jesus gives further instruction. Ideally, the sin is dealt with privately. The offender is restored But sometimes they resist the words of corrective discipline. So Jesus goes through the situation and then the solution. And then third, the escalation. Look at verse 16. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. All right. Brace yourself. Because Jesus wants you to do math. You ready? There's a couple of math problems in this text. They're not necessarily complicated math problems, but they are here, and we shouldn't ignore them. So let's do the math in verse 16. How many of you are there? This isn't a trick question. I didn't say how many of y'all are there. How many of you are there? Right? Like, there's... How many, how many Larrys are in the world? There's one. He's kind of unique, right? So there's one of you. So if you, who's one, takes one or two others with you, how many people is that? It's two or three, right? Now, like I said, this isn't, this isn't a complicated math problem. Maybe we should leave the math problems for the 1130 service. It's too early for math. Look, it's, it's kind of funny, but it's an important point. Later on, in verse 20, we're going to see those two or three showing up again, right? And the kinds of strange things that people say that means, right? That, well, all you have to do to have a church is have two or three people to come together and say, well, presto, we're a church. Well, I just want you to know right now, that's not the point of the chapter. Jesus assumes The church already exists. He talks in verse 17 about take it to the church, right? The two or three in verse 20, we'll see in a minute, is the same two or three from verse 16. The point he's going to make down there, and and I love this, is that he promises to be with us through the entire process from beginning to end. Verse 16 says, is telling us that if the offended person rejects the solution, if he won't hear you, right, if you can't win him over privately, you don't just get to drop it. 
The problem needs to be escalated, but with minimal escalation. Chances are that first private conversation led to some hard feelings, and one or two others ought to be able to step back from those emotions and offer some clear-headed and maybe impartial wisdom, still with the goal of restoration, with the goal of winning that soul back from sin. Now listen, when Jesus, what he's giving here is more than just boxes for us to check off when it comes to church discipline. We've seen it used that way, right? Brother so-and-so gets upset and what he considers to be the misbehavior of a church member, and so he's going to go, but he's already blabbed it to 15 other people and lined up a couple of people who, when they don't listen, he's going to take you with me because you already know what's true, right? And all of that's with the goal of, like, checking off the boxes so in a business meeting when someone says, well, did you follow Matthew 18? They can say, well, yeah, we sure did. We checked off all the boxes, Well, no, he didn't. You cannot treat the teaching of the Lord Jesus like a blunt instrument to be used to hammer away against someone you're upset with. Did you go because you really want to win them over? Did you go to them privately with the real goal of restoration? Did you bring others with you in hopes of providing impartial and compassionate wisdom while still keeping it as private as possible? Or did you already have them prepared to prejudge the matter? If that's how this process is handled, then the next step when the church is asked to make a judgment, the church's judgment should be, you handled this all wrong. Now Jesus is actually quoting from the Old Testament law here to put into practice some principles from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 19 verse 15 says one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits by the mouth of two or three witnesses the matter shall be established so as this escalates there should be more than one person who sees and understands the fact of the matter and is able to act as a witness testifying to the facts of the situation but those additional witnesses aren't needed until you have gone yourself to that person listen if if you come to me with all kinds of things that some church member has done be prepared for me to ask the question what did he say about that when you talked to him and until you do that you've got no business talking to others right the goal for jesus is to make restoration as privately as possible now there are ways in which this step of taking one or two others if it's necessary right this this step is with the goal of restoration (coughs) but there are ways where this sort of prepares for the next step if restoration isn't achieved But the goal is to solve the issue by making it only slightly more public. I like how Craig Bloomberg described this. He says, quote, often one person alone is too much of a codependent to deal adequately with recurrent sins of those closest to him or her. Effective intervention by qualified counselors is increasingly 
forming a crucial part of Christian life in our sick society. The primary goal, however, is to resolve an individual's conflicts by involving as few other people as possible. If you cannot win that person over privately, then you are required by Jesus to go to them with one or two others, not so that you can gang up on them, but to graciously and compassionately implore them to repent of their sin and be restored. But the sad reality of a sin-sick world is that some, even then, will dig in their heels and steadfastly refuse to repent of sin. And so the flow chart continues, moving from the escalation to, fourthly, the decision. Verse 17, if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Now, just as a side note, let me say that Jesus' view of the church is that it is a local, visible assembly of believers who come together. It's a group of people who are gathered. If Jesus saw the church as a universal, invisible organization of every person who believes, there is no hope to follow his command any further than verse 16. Because otherwise, how do you do what he says in verse 17 where he says, go tell it to the church, right? Go tell it to every believer in the world. Although I've seen there be people who try to do that. Only an assembly of believers can follow Jesus' final steps in this text. And this makes sense because only an assembly of believers can practice biblical discipline. The reason Jesus gave the great commission to the church is because the church's job is to teach all things whatsoever I have commanded you. That's important because we need to know what Jesus has commanded, not just what he's commanded here in order to, to exercise the kind of discipline, the oversight that he's commanded, but also so that we'll know how to make those discipline decisions when they come up. Because just because a person is brought before the church and there's a couple of witnesses saying that they've done wrong, that doesn't mean the church automatically assumes that it's true. The church is to use discernment and compassion, but at the same time, if that individual is embracing sinful behavior, and in Jesus' example here, that is the case, right? Your brother has sinned. And if they refuse compassionate correction from a friend, and they refuse the, the wisdom and correction of a few friends, and they still will not be turned, even though the church as a whole hears the situation and appeals to them to change, then there is a problem there that can no longer be tolerated. Now, maybe in this situation, you know, it gets difficult because Jesus is wisely vague here about what the sin is. Maybe this is a situation where that person does not think what they're doing is wrong, but the church as a whole shows them the Bible clearly teaches that's wrong, and yet they refuse to accept that. In that case, it's time to part ways. Maybe they know it's sinful, but they refuse to be persuaded to give that sin up because they don't want to change. 
Jesus says it's, it's time to remove them from the body. The church is called upon to make this kind of determination among its own membership. It is the extreme of the situation, but the Lord even describes it as extreme. The New King James does a really good job capturing this and saying if he refuses even to hear the church, then there's no further recourse or hope for correction. Jesus says, not me. Jesus says, if he refuses to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. But what does Jesus mean by treating them as a heathen? The word there is for pagan, or it's actually the word for Gentile, or a tax collector, a publican. Well, on one hand, we know the Jewish audience to whom Jesus is writing or speaking would have had a very low regard for pagans and tax collectors. At the very least, they would have taken this to mean recognize them as something other, something that does not fit, that there is a difference, that they aren't one of you. There is to be a marked difference where the church as a whole makes that same kind of statement, right? If you will not turn away from that behavior, then you are not one of us. And by the way, I'm using the Apostle John's terminology there for making a distinction about former church members, right? He says in his letters, they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, right? That, that you're not one of us is the biblical terminology. The command for G, of Jesus for them to be like a heathen or a tax collector is a command for the church to make a determination that those who persist in a sinful lifestyle and refuse to repent are not one of us. I know that is not the most comfortable command to follow, but it is the clear command of the Lord Jesus. Appeal to them personally, privately, right? Um, escalate that appeal for repentance and change with, with just a handful of others trying to keep it as private as possible. When it was required, appeal to them as the assembly of believers. And ultimately, if nothing in that process convicts their heart and brings change, then the church is to recognize that they do not fit in the assembly of Christ-following believers. Now, I just want to insert a little practical application or a couple of thoughts here. By just asking what the consequences are in a practical sense if a church shows that it is unwilling to ever take that ultimate step, the goal of the church's involvement is to persuade the offending individual of the seriousness of their actions. I assure you, most, most of the people who are in need of corporate discipline are very familiar with Matthew 18, and they recognize when they are moving through this flowchart. Right? Not long ago, I had a personal conversation with an individual, and then when I asked if I could have another conversation, their response was something very similar to, I quote, who are the one or two others that you're bringing with you? Because they assumed this was just leading to discipline. They knew that this exists. Well, I wasn't bringing one or two others. It was evident that 
being in that process, though, lent them a sense of seriousness to the appeal to leave the sin behind. You know, a church that expects that individuals are going to do this, especially if the expectation is that pastors or elders are going to be the ones to handle this, but then refuses to follow up with discipline to the unrepentant are, first off, they're expecting pastors or elders to do something that you're not willing to do. And in the process, it makes it less likely that a pastor can successfully address sin because the offending party already knows that if, if they reject that, it's never going to lead to the end result. There's never going to be any further consequences. In short, a church that consistently practices discipline makes it far less likely that church will need to practice discipline. Meanwhile, a church that refuses to practice discipline when it's needed is silently encouraging more disobedient behavior. Y'all, there there comes a time when loving authority within a church requires that we stop comforting people in their sin and start confronting people in their sin. Jesus insists on it. It's not easy, but we have the command of Jesus to do this, and we have the reassurance of his presence. Listen, we've seen the situation and the solution, the escalation, the decision. Finally, I want you to see the affirmation, verses 18 through 20. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Y'all, there's, there's probably a dozen different questions or thoughts that people have about verses 18 through 20. We're not going to try to answer all those this morning. But we at least need to deal with some of the important ones. First off, verse 18 is not Jesus' way of saying, whatever decision the church makes is going to get the stamp of approval from heaven. Jesus' working assumption is that a church which obeys his teaching in regard to discipline is a church that obeys his teaching, period. The decisions we make are going to be based on the teaching of Jesus. And those Heavenly, there'll be heavenly decisions based on the guidance of God's word. The, the NASB translates this verse just very literally. It sounds a little awkward, but think about what it's saying here. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. In other words, our decisions don't get the automatic stamp of approval of God, but our decisions are approved as they follow Jesus' teaching and the God-given guidance of Scripture. Verses 19 and 20, those two or three, (laughs) they show up again. Just like Jesus commands in verse 16, take one or two with you because in the mouth of two or three witnesses a thing is established. 
I know verse 20 is what we traditionally quote when we only have a couple of people staring at each other on Wednesday night, right? Well, wherever two or three are gathered together, Jesus is in the midst of them. I, that's not what he's saying here. Look, the Lord Jesus is with us always, everywhere, no matter how many of us they are. The point that Jesus is making here in the context is to give affirmation that he reassures his presence, not just the presence of when the church as a whole makes a decision, but even before that, as those two or three go, Jesus is there with them in that restoration process. He's with us, not just in the final step, but through the whole thing. And by the way, this ought to give us both comfort and caution about the way you approach others using this portion of Scripture. When you go to another brother privately, you need to remember Jesus is there. When you take one or two others, you need to remember that Jesus is there. You'd better have the heart of Jesus who primarily in Matthew 18 is seeking the restoration of his sheep. He doesn't want any of his little ones to perish, he says. He's he's looking for greatness that's defined by childlike humility, not arrogant aggression. Listen, you have to understand, Jesus knows this is hard. Not just hard on the people who are being confronted by their sin, but also the people who are doing the work of confronting sin. And that's where the conversation goes next. We're not going to keep preaching in Matthew 18 right now, but just look at verses 21 and 22. I guess I am going to keep preaching in Matthew 18 right now. Peter came and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Great, another math problem. This time it's multiplication. Of course, Jesus is not saying that you grant forgiveness 490 times and then after that, if they say they're sorry, you don't have to forgive them anymore. That's not Jesus' point. What he's saying here is that you forgive, forgiveness goes beyond any of the limits that you have in your mind of forgiving people. Jesus answers Peter's question after this with the parable of the unforgiving servant, which is instructive for those who would rather just exercise discipline in a way that seeks to cut people off instead of restore them because the unforgiving servant acted that way because he had forgotten how much he had been forgiven. Y'all, Jesus calls on us to exercise discipline, to restore his people, to rescue his sheep. And he gave us the the loving example of himself. I'll leave the 99 and go by myself after the one. And it's no coincidence that right after that, his command is, and if you see someone going astray, you go by yourself privately to restore them. And if that doesn't work, take one or two others. And if that doesn't work, deal with it as an assembly. But all of it with the Christ-like spirit of how much has he forgiven you? How much compassion has he shown you? How lovingly does he appeal to you to leave sin behind? How willing is he, 
How willing is Jesus to allow his people to wander into sin without going to them and seeking to draw them out and restore them? We should not be any more tolerant as a body of Christ, as a church. We should not be any more willing to watch people wallow in sin than Jesus himself was willing to watch people wallow in sin. That's the target. The restoration is the end goal, and the discipline that Jesus outlines here is the means to achieve that end goal of restoration. 